0: YouTube. I listen to music. I FaceTime my grandparents. I do video games. I make many videos. I watch movies. I like to text my friends. Welcome to the Technopanic Podcast. Here are your co host Ian O'Byrne,
1: and my mom, Kristen Turner. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Techno Panic Podcast. My name is Ian O'Byrne, and as always, I'm joined by my co host, Kristen Turner. In our last episode, we thought a little bit about Kristen's experience at the Connected Learning Conference. Kristen, in that, you talked about a quote or a question that Dr. Jenkins asked you on the way out. Can you remind us of what he asked?
2: Yes, uh, Dr. Henry Jenkins is a leader in our field of looking at how kids participate online. And he said that we used to say it takes a village to raise a child, but now we are so focused on protecting the child from the village. And that really got me thinking about how our kids are participating in online spaces and how the panic kind of rises up in us to protect them in those online spaces. And I think that this quote captures his body of research about youth culture. He's termed uh, the way youth are participating online participatory culture, and we had the opportunity to talk to him in a little bit more depth about that, and we spent about a half an hour um, with him not so long ago, Ian, and, and hopefully we can share that with everybody here today.
1: Absolutely. Let's listen to that conversation now.
2: Today we are joined by Henry Jenkins, the Provost Professor of Communication, Journalism, Cinematic Art, and Education at the University of Southern California, who is the author or co-author of such books as Convergence Culture, Where Old and New Media Collide, Spreadable Media, Creating Meaning and Value in a Networked Society, and By Any Media Necessary, The New Youth Activist. He is also a host of the How Do You Like It So Far podcast, which focuses on civic imagination. Welcome today, Dr. Jenkins.
0: I'm happy to be here.
2: Thank you for being here. You are well known in our field of literacy research through your work with participatory culture, and we thought we would start this conversation by just asking you what that means so that we can help our parents who are listening to understand kind of the research that you've been doing.
0: Well, at the most basic level, participatory culture is one where more and more people have the capacity to express themselves through media. That might mean making media. It might mean sharing media with each other. It might mean using the online environment to discuss media. Uh, It's a particular relationship to media content. I like to say my grandmother was a remix artist, right? My grandmother grew up in the Appalachian Mountain region. She made quilts with the other women of the village, and they would take pieces of cloth and stitch them together to create blankets, which were gifts to other couples in the neighborhood, right? And they learned from each other. The younger women starting as a child might observe the older women making it, and they they learned in that way. They were taking pieces of textile made at the local textile mills and using the scrap textile to create something new. My son is also a remix artist, right? He's invested as a fan in media property. He takes pieces of media and stitches them together in new ways in order to create something that expresses his identity. And he shares it online via YouTube or social media platforms. Many of our children are creating media today in ways that are meaningful to them. And they could be in the role of fan, they could be gamers, they could be podcasters, they could be bloggers, they could be just video producers of all kinds are finding the ability to make media. And so that active image of media, not just as consumers, but as participants, is what we mean when we think about participatory culture.
1: I think about my son as you're explaining that, and he is a gamer. He's in fourth grade. He's been gaming for a couple of years now. He consumes, we consume a lot of YouTube in our house. And so when I asked him what you want to be, you know, he said, I want to be a YouTube star. And so we started investigating how do you create and share on YouTube? But the challenge as a parent is a lot of times there is this term that we hear thrown around screen time. And there's this fear of screen time in that, yes, there is the opportunity for him or children to create media, share media, consume media, but then there's a concern about this portal, this screen that they, that they use to interact with that media. What are your thoughts about screen time and possible challenges in light of participatory media?
0: Well, I'm, first of all, I don't think the screen is the problem, right? It's what we do with screens. And so when we lump every possible screen in our lives together into this large category, we're erasing the differences between what happens when we watch television or when we edit a video and post it online or we're talking to our friends or we're playing a video game. All of those are technically screens, but we're engaged with them in different ways. I mean, most of my work life is on a screen. So if someone restricted my screen time, I don't know how I do my job. Right. So I don't think we would talk about paper time in the same way that parents talk about screen time, right? Think of all the kinds of paper that historically passed through her life. Is it reading the newspaper the same thing as drawing on a pad of paper? Is that the same thing as reading a book, you know, we are signing a, a letter or a document? All of those are on paper, but we don't describe something called paper time. For some kids, particularly kids with disabilities, this term screen time is particularly unfortunate. And I draw on the work of my former student, Meryl Alpert, who works with kids with communication disorders, because the only way they, many of these kids can communicate is through screens and digital devices. So when we describe screen time as a problem, do we take the voice away from these young people and sort of restrict them to a limited amount of exposure? So I think the screen time myth is a serious problem and us moving forward toward thinking about what responsible parenting looks like in an age of networked technology.
2: So what are some of the things that parents should consider in order to be responsible parents and to help their children understand the benefits of screens and also some of the possible challenges that you're describing?
0: Well, I would start, you know, first of all, I'd start with what is the activity? And is the activity passive or active? What are we doing with the screen is the kind of core Question And so, even television can be consumed in very active ways, turning it from something you passively watch to, as a parent, co-viewing, engaging in conversations around what's taking place, in an age where we can freeze the image and reverse the image and watch things again, analytically engaging with the television shows we're watching, is one mode of parenting. And it looks very much like what we've been trained to do with picture books with our kids. Like, Where's Waldo is a kind of book that's intended to be interactive. I used to use Richard Scarry's books as Mm -hmm. something that was intended to be interactive because they're full of details and you could point different things out and every reading is different. Now, how do we go from that to creating? Well, when my son was four or five, we used to have story time every night and one night of the we, one night we would tell him a story and the next night he would tell us a story and we would write down the story on the computer he would draw pictures in response to the story we would print the stories out for grandparents as birthday and christmas presents mother day present father day presents it got him in a space where he thought of himself as an author of his culture and what it gave us was a window into his fantasy life right we saw saw All of the television he consumed or the games he played would sooner or later surface in the stories he was making up. And we had the ability as parents to have an insight into what he was actually doing with that media and have a conversation about it in a really open, fluid way, as opposed to sort of just turning him loose on TV and passively watching it, or turning him loose to video games and passively watching it. So that sense of building media literacy from the ground up from early, early ages is an important part of parenting in a networked age. And then you're looking for balance. That's what's valuable in the screen time formulation. It's shorthand for the idea that things should not be out of balance, that there's, of course, kids should play outside if they have yards and outside spaces where they're able to play. Lots of kids today don't. But if you have access to the outside world, of course, it's great. You're, you know, the screen should not cut and get in the way of socialization and socializing with friends and the family. That's a really important thing. You shouldn't necessarily be using it instead of the interactions of the family around the dinner table, for example. But having kids get passionate about a piece of media for a period of time is a very healthy response. You get a new video game and you want to play it for an extended period of time, that's great. If you're really passionate about a TV show and you want to watch it intensely and other creative thoughts are coming out of that. That's really a good thing. The fanish response I see as a valuable one, but those tend to come in waves and cycles. There's periods of intensity and then it declines and it moves to something else. And as long as there's a healthy balance, I personally don't see a problem with it any more than it's a problem if a kid gets excited by a book series and reads all the Harry Potter books for months on end and then shifts to a different book, right? That's, that's a very natural response to stories. We care about stories, we want to engage in those characters. My generation had records, children's records, and we would play them endlessly, the same record over and over again, till we could recite it from memory, and we could play it in the backyard, and we could sing all the songs, and it filtered into our fantasy for a period of time, and then we'd be bored silly and never want to listen to the record again until we're adults nostalgic for our childhood, right? So it's not about balance day by day, but it is about balance in terms of the life cycle of the child over a month, a year, whatever.
1: It seems like our discussions, Kristen and I usually come back to the need for that communication and conversation with youth about their media consumption. One of the things that you just talked about is making sure that you have that balance and it is a safe balance. And do children have safe spaces to go out and play? We've seen that in Dana Boyd and others work. Do children have others that they can talk to and communicate with? One of the, the areas of pushback that we sometimes hear in this screen times debate is this, this dialogue about, well, my child only has online friends or they don't have any real friends because they are in this video game system or they're YouTube, you know, but they, this idea that it's not a real friend because it's someone that's in a digital space. What are your thoughts about that? uh, Well,
0: they're real real people. They're real relationships. Mm -hmm. They're different affordances of how you're dealing with other people in a digital space. But, you know, I think I can think of so many different circumstances where that's the best place to safely engage with other human beings. Mm -hmm. You're in an unsafe neighborhood. You're, you know, kids at risk. My son never had a backyard. He lived, you know, never particularly had friends who lived close to him. He, he had interests that were different from some of his classmates at school. All of those drove, drove him at an early age to network communication as a way of connecting with other people. And he connected with people all over the planet. I mean, he developed his first online relationship was with someone in Nebraska. He was living in Boston at the time. And they worked through a courtship online that was very intense to them. And it became so real for them that I finally flew out. Uh, flew out with him to Nebraska so they could meet in person and watching them become fully, you know, watching them start to pick up each other's pace as they walked and touch each other's hair and the sense of this being a tangible relationship after years, after months of being online was a very interesting process. But those relationships were very, very meaningful to him. And I came as a parent to value those relationships as an important part of his life. Now, would I like for him to have closer friends living near him? Of course. But realistically, the circumstances we were living under and his sense of estrangement, he was being bullied at school for the things he was interested in and for, you know, so forth, finding a safe space to make friends was far more important to me than whether those friends were there in person or whether they were virtual relationships.
2: And for younger children in particular, I think parents are worried about the safety of the spaces online. Do you have any thoughts about whether children are safe on space on online spaces?
0: Well, I think it varies from space to space. And I think parents need to know where their children are playing in a digital space, just as they know where they're playing in virtual in physical spaces, right? Who they're playing with. Now that doesn't mean spying on your kids, right? They need someone watching their back, not looking over their shoulder, right? And I think that's a distinction. They need to feel as much freedom to transgress and escape adult control under safe circumstances as kids did in the backyard culture and the bike culture of suburbia that I grew up in, right? That there was a sense of all, not always having your mother watching you every second, but mothers knew where we were and what we were doing in part by having report backs at the end of the day and dinner table conversations and so forth so knowing what it is checking it out right is important i wouldn't send a kid into 4chan for example right as a space that's very toxic space uh, you know not a safe space Uh, you know certain channels now are where the alt-right and neoconservative groups are, are recruiting young men i would be a little nervous about sending my son into those kinds of spaces. But that's why we need to know what's going on, why you should watch your kid playing games in the same way that I would turn out for a little game if that was what he was onto, or listening to off-key renditions of Sousa if he was in the band, or badly performed version of Guys and Dolls if he was in theater, right? Parents have always watched and engaged with forms of cultural activity that may be less pleasurable than we acknowledge to our kids, but we do because it's important to the kids and understanding what it is they're doing and what their accomplishments in that space means to them is an important part of parenting. So you don't get to opt out. You can't just turn the kids over to be feral kids of the internet, but you do need to give them some freedom to explore and to form associations.
2: I think you're making a really great point about supporting your children's interests. And I think that one thing parents fear is seeing screen time as a potential interest. I know you've done a lot of research on how youth interests can lead them into activist roles or even um, into careers. So can you can you share maybe a couple of great examples sure. of youth who've started in this participatory way and, and done something with their their life? Yeah.
0: I'll tell the story of Flourish who I first met when she was about 15. By that point, she she had started as a Harry Potter fan, got very passionate about Harry Potter. By 13 or 14, she was writing Harry Potter fan fiction. By about 14, she's giving advice to adults about their stories and learning to write very actively through that process. By 15, she helped to create one of the biggest fan fiction websites out there today she became my graduate student at MIT a decade after I first met her. So she got a master's at MIT in comparative media studies. She now has her own podcast called Fancasting. She works for a company called chaotic good and she advises the major studios on their fan relationships, right? So she helps studio properties figure out the best way to relate to her fans. So she's a success story of this idea of following your interest learning things through it. We now know that fan fiction sites have incredible structures of mentorship. Katie Davis is a co-author of a new book that just came out on mentorship in fan fiction writing communities. So they're not only teaching kids to think about writing, but also other aspects of life, right? Cultural knowledge, uh, fans of Japanese anime, talking to kids in Japan about Japanese culture. Those kids learn English better by talking to an American kids. There's just a culture of mentorship. Some place like Archive of Our Own has now something like 5 million pieces of fan fiction by something like 2 million authors that grew, grew up over encouraging kids to write in that way. So we could tell story after story. Some of them are exceptional stories. Flourish is probably a child prodigy story, just like saying you have a kid who plays the violin and ends up going to the conservancy, I get it that that every kid's going to go down that route. But there are values in following those passions if you're in a connected learning environment where parents, teachers, other community leaders recognize and value the kid's passion and help them find routes to connect it to a broader body of knowledge, help them mobilize it in school. So it's not like you turn them loose. It's like with any other interest. How do you feed it in such a way that it eventually connects up with things that are recognized as achievements at school and the job market? But that's why parents have to be actively involved and supportive of their kids' ventures into the online world.
1: When we talk about feeding that that desire to engage in these digital spaces, one of the things that Kristen and I have been looking at is moving from from primarily consumers of that content to creators and and you know going back to how you started our talk you know to remixing that content and taking a lot of the the text that's out there and turning it into something new putting their spin on it what are your thoughts about moving children youth from primarily consumers to creators
0: well i think it's valuable to have that experience of creating you know, not every kid needs to be a full-time creator any more than any, that any given youth needs to be a full-time stamp collector or football player or anything else, right? It's a skill, I think, to be literate in the modern era, you need to be able to create as well as consume media. Just like to be able to be literate, you need to be able to read and write, right? So those skills are connected. It may not be every kid's passion, right? And kids contribute to the digital world by selective, selecting pieces of media, forwarding pieces of media, commenting on pieces of media, and that shapes our media environment as well, and also fosters a sense of participation, social and civic engagement, critical awareness. So media literacy can consist of recirculating media with commentary just as much as it can consist of making media. But I would love to have every kid in America have the experience at least once of making media. I was a super eight filmmaker in the seventies when I was a high school student and learning to edit film and splice it together and think about shots. I never became a filmmaker, but it taught me to think critically about media and powerful, powerful ways to think the materiality of how media is made. And I've seen the same thing with kids all over the world. I was talking at lunch just now with a guy about a trip I did to India. And I went to one of the worst slums in Mumbai and spent some time shadowing an ethnographer there and I went into this house where all of us sitting up couldn't fit, quite fit in the house the family and I and the ethnographer so I have no idea how these people slept in that house probably in shifts right but the kids in that house had all made media they made it on their phones one of the guys had gone to an office where he was a janitor and used the computer there at night illicitly to make a video tribute to a friend of his who had died but they'd made media and it changed the way they looked at media so i've seen this all over the world kids under dire poverty are still finding ways to make media in the digital age and it's meaningful to them so i do a true believer in that experience it doesn't mean every kid has to be a media maker for the rest of their lives
2: well you certainly are a success story in and of yourself going from filmmaker to really important researcher in in this field. Ian, do you have any other questions for Henry before we let him go?
1: Yeah, to wrap up, you talked a little bit about how to talk to parents about these technologies in these spaces. How do you describe technology or describe these spaces to youth or do you just listen to them?
0: Well, some of both. I mean, I think listening is really important Every time I talk to a young person, I probably learn some, more than I can, can teach them about this media environment, but I don't assume that they're all digital natives or that they all have an equal immersion in digital technology because it's still unevenly distributed in our culture. I learned the work throughs, how kids break open computers and get access, and I learned stories like the one I just told about the impoverished kids in Mumbai who found ways to make media when it was... All the odds were against them but i also think they need to hear validation they need to hear adults say that what they're doing as fans and gamers and other users of new media is important is something that's recognizable that's valuable to them they need to have people articulate that pathway that goes from making super 8 movies to becoming a media scholar or from you know uh you making playing with sound on the computer to doing something professional going from a fan fiction writer to advising major studios about their fan relations. Those paths are important for young people to hear because the message they continually get is that you're wasting your time, that's rubbish. You know, turn that off and do something valuable. And in fact, they're doing things valuable. I think about my mother always, you know, my parents are pretty supportive, but the number of times I was supposed to turn off the movies I was watching on TV and just go do something else and the way i earn earned my living today and so many of the films that I watched illicitly as a 12 and 13 year old are now films that I teach to my students and draw on in my scholarship today. We don't know what's going to be valuable to our kids. And so teaching them to think about how to follow their passions and connect it to things that are useful is an important thing for adults to say to young people.
1: Absolutely. The more we study digital spaces and we study the discourse practices, the discursive practices that we have, you know, we have questions about whether or not adults know how to behave in these spaces. And a lot of times when we look at youth, uh, we see some incredible things happening and they're leveraging these spaces more efficiently than many times the adults are.
0: They have a lot to, some youth have a lot to teach us. I just want to block that idea that it's all youth who have all of that exposure because they don't. But it's as diverse as any adults, the, the adult community's access. But there are things we learn from young people and there are things we learn in spaces where young people and our adults together. So we know historically it takes a village to raise a child, but right now we're protecting children from any exposure to the village, right? so we. We need to figure out how to bring more adults in the lives of our children, and the online world may be safer than the, the offline world in terms of exposure, exposure to strangers and exposure to adults who share, share their interests. Monitor it, of course, but be also supportive of the idea that some other adult has skills to teach your child and mentorship to provide them. That may be really valuable for their development.
2: Well, thank you, Henry, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us and uh, with all the parents out there who might be listening and wondering about whether there's value in what their children are doing through screens. I think you've convinced me that absolutely there is value if we listen and talk to our kids and let them follow their interests with our support. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Well, Ian, we covered a lot of ground in a short time with Dr. Jenkins. What were some of your takeaways?
1: So I I thought a number of things reflecting upon our discussion with Dr. Jenkins, one of the the key things that's, that stuck out for me is initially uh, the, the stories or the anecdotes that he shared about youth as they engage and connect online. Most specifically, I was thinking about the story that he shared about his child, about the relationship and the friendship that the child had with someone that was not close, A lot of times we hear parents, um, and I've thought about this, you know, with my own children, we think about our children and their relationships with others online, and we think about our own friendships growing up, and, you know, these friendships now that are, quote-unquote, virtual or across digital spaces, sometimes there's the concern that our children or that youth don't have, quote-unquote, real relationships or real friends, and dr jenkins really pushed back on this and said that they are real relationships they are uh, real friendships it's just that they exist across these digital spaces and he put a really nice ending on that by talking about his child that you know they they had this friendship and then they took the time to go meet face to face and they really hit it off and so the the one real takeaway that i had is that these are real meaningful relationships and real meaningful connections or bonds. It's just that they exist across digital spaces. And sometimes as parents, we put in this artificial definition of what we would consider to be a friend and deem this new connection or bond or friendship as being not real because it's not this face-to-face friendship that we've grown up with
2: well and i think that as adults and professionals we we have this happen all the time i mean i think you and i are a perfect example of this where we worked together digitally and in an online space for years before we actually met in person and when we met in person we we did feel like we were friends and that we had known each other because we had had interactions in digital spaces and and kids are no different than that they they can develop real relationships based on who they are in the online space One of the things he said that really stuck out to me was that as parents, we need to watch our kids back, but not always be looking over their shoulder. And I think that this is really important. We always have to have their backs. We have to be supportive of what they're doing, but it doesn't mean we have to micromanage what they're doing so this goes back to communication something you and i have talked about before but it also it encourages me to let my kids have some freedom and to develop these online mentorships and relationships with peers and this idea of having a mentorship culture was something else dr jenkins talked about that i i find very important and actually one of the best things about Digital spaces and screens is that kids can find mentors and people who know more than I do as their parent about a particular thing, and they can learn from other people in a digital culture. So I want to watch my kids back, but I don't necessarily want to micromanage what they're doing, and I do want to help them and encourage them to find mentors.
1: Absolutely. I thought that that was one of the more heartening, especially from a parent's point of view, uh, one of the more heartening pieces about. The role of mentors and and parents or adults or, or peers for youth as they interact and participate online, I made the statement in the interview about, you know, in some of my research, I'm beginning to think that adults don't really know how to deal with these digital spaces and a lot of the really interesting things that I see occurring are coming from youth and that, you know, adults this large conglomerate, they should look at youth and and learn from youth and really get out of the way and, and see what youth want to do as they engage and connect in these digital spaces. And Dr. Jenkins pushed back on that and he said, I don't entirely agree with that. I think that there are good adults that are out there that are thoughtful and that, you know, one, we need to study them and youth need to study them and we need to find ways for, you know, mentorship, that mentorship culture to emerge, and so that made me, you know, I thought a lot about that over the last couple days as I thought about what youth could gain from as they are mentored by adults, but then also I think that it could work the other way. I think that adults can be mentored by youth, so I think I'm going to change some of my thoughts or framing around that um, and give the adults in the room a little bit more credit on this.
2: Well, thank you for giving me some credit here. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so for all the parents out there, we want to leave you just with a concrete idea to take uh, to your children, perhaps tonight. Ask your child about their online relationships. Who are they talking to? Perhaps their peers. Perhaps there are mentors in their spaces. Who are they following? Who are they trying to learn from? And who is important as a mentor in what they are doing online? So these are some concrete ideas for you to have conversations with your child because as we keep coming back to, it is all about communicating and knowing what's going on and looking or watching their backs, but not looking so much over their shoulder that you're controlling.
1: Thanks for listening.
2: See you next time. Thanks for listening. Now I can get back to watching
0: my videos. i